it mean to believe into Jesus? It underscores the idea of complete and total trust and reliance on another person. It means to throw yourself entirely, your entire trust, your entire reliance onto Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How do the normal means of the proclamation of the gospel motivate us as Christians to evangelize the world and invest in missions? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue the series Human Responsibility. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, God has ordained a normal course by which people come to saving faith through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We as Christians have experienced that truth, whether by the preaching of God's Word or through evangelistic efforts, we've come to realize our sinful condition and the need for the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, to stand in on our behalf. And Tom will show today from the Scripture, the Gospel is never meant to be hidden, but to be proclaimed to the unbelieving world. Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word on The Word Unleashed. Years ago, I had the opportunity to read the biography of William Carey. William Carey, as you know, was a missionary to India and really rightfully considered the father of modern missions. It was one of the greatest Christian biographies I have ever read, and in fact, I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. Specifically, it's the one uh, written of Carey by his great-grandson, S. Pierce Carey. You may know the story of William Carey. As a young boy, he developed a love for the, the journeys of Captain Cook and, and other world explorers. And eventually, as he became a Christian and as he grew into an adult, that passion translated into a passion to see the gospel taken to every corner of the globe. Carey was especially driven by, by what he saw as the missionary heart of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, this is what Carey wrote. If Christ could stoop so low as to visit our sinful world and be moved with compassion upon the most undeserving and guilty, the most sinful and depraved, in what better way could we demonstrate that we are partakers of His grace than by earnest endeavor to imitate His example, by laboring to promote the salvation of the most ignorant and helpless of mankind? As Carey tried to motivate others in his home country toward a passion for missions, he encountered fierce opposition and resistance. In fact, on one occasion he addressed the minister's fraternal of the Northampton Baptist Association in the year 1787 concerning this very issue of missions. It was there, after he finished his impassioned plea, that John Ryland Sr. famously replied this to Carey, young man, sit down, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In the year 1792, some five years later, in response to those kinds of attitudes, 
Carey wrote a pamphlet entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. It really became the, the Magna Carta of modern missions. It was that very same year, in the year 1792, that he also preached his famous sermon, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. The very day that he preached that sermon, before the end of that day, the Northampton Baptist Association adopted this resolution, resolved that a plan be prepared against the next minister's meeting at Kettering for forming a Baptist society for propagating the gospel among the heathen. Out of that, the modern missionary movement was born. Now, William Carey, as you may know, although some of you from different backgrounds may not be aware of this, he believed very strongly in God's sovereignty and salvation. In fact, he referred to himself as a Calvinist. But he understood that if God chose those whom he would save before the foundation of the world, as we learned in Romans 9, he must also have chosen the means by which he would accomplish their salvation. And that is exactly what we learn in our text in Romans chapter 10 today. Just to remind you, we're studying Paul's explanation of human responsibility. In chapter 9, he dealt with divine election. But beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, and running through the end of chapter 10, he addresses this issue of human responsibility. When people hear the gospel and don't believe in the gospel, including the Jewish people, which is really the focus of these chapters, they are personally responsible. Now, what are the primary factors that contribute to responsibility for not believing the gospel? We're looking at three factors. So far, we've looked at one of those factors, and that is a failure to understand the purpose of God's law. That's the end of chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. A failure to understand what God's law is even given to us to accomplish. Then we're, we're in the middle of looking at a second factor, and that is found in chapter 10, verses 1 through 15, and that is an unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone. Not only do they think they can earn their own way, but there is an, an absolute unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone. That is born, as we saw in verses 1 to 4, in some cases out of an abysmal, abysmal ignorance of faith. They did not know, Paul says. He doesn't mean they hadn't heard. They had. This was a, a self-imposed ignorance, but nevertheless, they didn't really get it. They didn't really grasp the reality of faith as the way to be right with God. Part of the reason was they had embraced the diametrical opposite of faith, and he develops that in verses 5 through 8. There are these two paths to seek to be right with God. There is the righteousness based on keeping the law, and there's the righteousness which comes to us from God through faith. They had embraced the way of works. In verses 9 through 10, Paul explains what the way of faith looks like, what faith is, and he, he explains there the dual aspects of faith. We'll come back to that, so I'll pass over that for now. And then last week in verses 11 to 13, Paul drew out the practical implications of faith. It includes the fact that that 
that message, that way of being right with God is universal in its scope. It includes the fact that it is individual, it's personal in its application. It also is an, a promise from God as well as an invitation. He ends in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now in our text this morning, Paul takes us a step farther. Here he explains in verses 14 and 15 the normal course of faith. The normal path or the normal course that faith takes in an individual life. But he does it in reverse. And I'll make this clear before we're done this morning. He does it in reverse. But let's look at our text. You follow along as I read Romans 10. And just to get a running start in context, let's pick it up in verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now the obvious point of verses 14 and 15 is to explain to us the normal course or the normal path that faith takes. While that is the main point, it is impossible to separate this text from its massive implications. And so let me summarize this passage, including both its meaning and intent, as well as its implications. Here's how I would summarize these verses, and then we'll take it apart together. God has ordained the normal course by which people come to saving faith. And that normal course becomes the main motive for both personal evangelism and world missions. Let me say that again. God has ordained the normal course, the normal path by which people come to saving faith. And when you understand that normal course, that becomes the main motive for your being a personal evangelist and for your embracing the priority of world missions. Now, let's look at it together. I want you to notice, first of all, the logical connection between these two verses, verses 14 and 15, with what has come before. Back in verse 13, Paul has just said, quoting Joel 2.28, that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he explains all that has to happen before someone will call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls will be saved. But some things have to happen first. In a series of rhetorical questions, Paul unfolds several conditions that are necessary before someone will call on the name of the Lord. That's how these verses connect with what comes before. But let me also point out how they connect with what follows. Beginning in verse 16 and running down through the end of the chapter, verse 21, Paul is going to argue that in the case of the Jewish people, all of these conditions have been met except for one, and that is their believing. They're believing. All that's missing in their case is faith. But he will say that's not God's fault. 
God has made his plan clear in the Old Testament. He's going to quote a number of passages in the end of this chapter from the Old Testament. And God has made his plan clear in the New Testament proclamation of the gospel, which they had heard from Paul as well as from many others. So Paul's point in the last part of this chapter is going to be that God held the Jewish people of the first century who had refused to respond to his gospel responsible just as he holds people today, people even in this room who have heard the gospel and not responded to it responsible for their rejection as well. In fact, Paul identifies the real problem of such people down in verse 21, the last verse of this chapter, where he says the problem is they are disobedient and obstinate. People who hear the gospel and don't respond are, in the end, disobedient and obstinate. Now go back to verses 14 and 15. You'll notice that the pronoun they occurs throughout these verses. So understand it refers specifically in the context here of the Jews, but not just of the Jews. It applies universally to anyone who hears the gospel and refuses to embrace it. Now, look again at verses 14 and 15. You'll notice they contain four rhetorical questions. Each of those questions begins with the interrogative, how, and in each question, Paul repeats the verb from the previous question, and that creates a chain of conditions or steps that must be normally followed when a person is saved. In fact, this passage has been called the golden chain of evangelism. There are four questions, four rhetorical questions, but as I think you'll see by the time we're done, there are actually five separate points that Paul is making here. In this series of rhetorical questions, Paul explains five conditions that must be met in the normal course of saving faith. Let's look at them together. The first condition, and frankly, I'll just mention it pretty much in passing, since we studied it last week in verse 13, the first condition is calling on Christ. Calling on Christ. He alludes to it there in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Verse 13 says you must call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. What does that mean? Well, as we discovered last week, and if you weren't here, you can go back and sort of catch up because I'm just going to give you a summary of what we learned. But we discovered last week that to call on the name of the Lord means to call upon Him in a prayer of repentance and faith, pleading for the forgiveness of your sins, pleading for His grace, pleading for salvation. It is a prayer, to call on the name of the Lord is a prayer that expresses genuine faith in the heart, seeking forgiveness. If you want a powerful example of calling on the name of the Lord in order to be saved, reread the parable in Luke 18 we read just a few moments ago in our scripture reading. It's the tax collector who finds himself overwhelmed by his sin, willing to let go of his sin, seeking the forgiveness that's made possible through the innocent death of a substitute. That is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. 
So the first condition then that must be met in the normal course of saving faith is calling on Christ. Now that brings us to our text itself. The second condition is believing on Christ. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? You see, before you can call out to God in a genuine prayer of repentance and forgiveness, you must first have believed. Sadly, there are many people in our culture who have been taught to pray what's called the sinner's prayer as a kind of mantra. Now, I'm not down on a sinner's prayer. Sinners pray. Sinners cry out to God for forgiveness. And I think people have been saved by praying the sinner's prayer. But understand this, it's not like a a magic formula. Many who pray the so-called sinner's prayer do so not from a genuine heart of faith, a heart that's willing to confess Jesus as Lord, as we learned in the earlier verses. But the true sinner's prayer, like that of the tax collector in Jesus' story, is an expression of a heart that has already believed. They can't call on Him in whom they have not believed. That is crucial in this process. Now notice that expression. It's an unusual expression for Paul. Literally he says, it is into whom they have not believed. Or if we turn it around, we could say this, you need to believe into Jesus. Paul only uses that expression a couple of times, but it is pervasive in John's gospel and in his first letter, 1 John. What does it mean to believe into Jesus? It underscores the idea of complete and total trust and reliance on another person. It means to throw yourself entirely, your entire trust, your entire reliance onto Jesus Christ. And if we have any question about what it means, remember here in the very context, Paul has already explained what it means to believe in Christ. Go back to verses 9 and 10. Here here we discover what faith looks like. Verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he, he shares the same aspects of faith in a different order and slightly differently worded in verse 10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Here, Paul defines true saving faith, or as we described it, the faith that truly saves has two dual aspects, two basic aspects. Did you see them in verse 9? Number one, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You must believe the facts of the gospel, Jesus, who he is, and and about his life, his death, and his resurrection, and you must assent to those. You must believe in your heart. There's an emotional assent to their truth. And he says specifically, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That is shorthand. That expression is shorthand, as we saw, for believing all of Jesus claims about himself, all that he claimed to be, and believing in his saving work. That's what it means to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
You must believe in your heart in the claims of Jesus Christ, that He claimed to be God, that He claimed to be the Son sent by the Father to redeem fallen humanity. You must believe in His, in his perfect life lived entirely without sin. You must believe in His death as a substitutionary sacrifice and in His resurrection and ascension. You must believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. But secondly, you'll notice in verse 9, he also says there's another part of true saving faith. You must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, we saw when we studied this, it means to confess two things. It means to confess that Jesus is God, and it means to confess that He is your master. That's how that word Lord, kurios, is used in the New Testament. Again, if you want a beautiful picture of this, look at Thomas eight days after the resurrection when he sees the resurrected Christ and he says, my, my Lord, my kurios, my master, and my theos, my God. That's what it means to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. It includes repentance from sin because it means you must reject your old master's sin and self and Satan. It includes trusting in Christ alone for salvation and, and having a heart of submission to Him and to His will. Here's Paul's point here in verse 14. Before anyone can call upon the Lord in repentance and faith, he or she must first have already believed like that, like verses 9 and 10. To genuinely call upon the Lord in the way that the tax collector did, that's what must happen. So to be saved then, you must meet these conditions. Calling on Christ, number one. Number two, believing in Christ. The third condition may surprise you a little bit, but this is what Paul says. The third condition is hearing from Christ. Hearing from Christ. Notice verse 14. How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Now remember, every word of the Scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. It is the product of the breath of God. That means God has, has perfectly chosen in the Holy Spirit every single word, and so every word matters. It also means that every word that isn't said matters. Notice what Paul does not say in verse 14. He does not say, how will they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? What he says is, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? In other words, you cannot believe in Jesus if you have not first heard Him. Now, that immediately raises a question. How in the world can people who live outside of the first century and away from the land of Israel hear Jesus? In the same way, when you hear the gospel accurately presented from someone Christ has authorized to speak on his behalf, and we'll talk about who that is in just a minute, you are hearing Christ. This is exactly what the Scriptures teach. Go back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as Jesus prepares to send out the 70... and he gives them all the instructions they need, he concludes his speech to them, his, his commission of them, in verse 16 of Luke 10. This is remarkable. He says, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. 
And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You hear what Jesus is saying? Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you are hearing Christ's words from his word this morning. And if you don't listen to his words, then Jesus says you're not listening to him. And if you're not listening to him, then you're rejecting him and you're really rejecting the Father who sent him. That's just the reality. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part 11 of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom brings you part 12 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.